You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Welcome to another episode of Driving Law. I am Kyla Lee at Acumen Law, and with me, my co-host, Paul Doroshenko. Hi, Kyla. How are you? Uh, better than you. Yeah, I haven't been enjoying my experience of COVID, I can tell you. I've been, um, I've been watching to say. Yeah. All week while we've been planning because, you, you know, you didn't have COVID the last time we recorded the podcast. Now you have COVID for a change. My, how the turntables. My, how the turntables? Yes. Or how the tables turned. That, that's the joke, but yes. Okay. Okay. All right. Um, the, uh, that was intentional is what you're saying. Yes. The turntables. Okay. Yes, the uh, I you told me for the longest time that I was immune. You kept saying you're immune. You've been exposed to everybody. You've never gotten sick. You're immune. And I was like, no, no, no. Trust me. I still have to take precautions. I have no idea whether or not I've got immunity. And sure enough, Friday night, I felt I felt oogie. Saturday, I got up. First thing I did was cough. And I somehow managed to struggle through my day moving office furniture all day. Sunday morning, I got up, tested myself, and I'm like, ah, crap. <laughs> and so I've been in isolation ever since. I saw you, me and my parents saw you on Saturday briefly, and I was terrified. I've, I've taken a COVID test every day this week because, you know, I basically think about someone who has COVID and I catch it. Well, that seems to have been the case. I didn't want to be uh, to blame for your COVID, uh, and I didn't think I had COVID on Saturday, but I you know, I stand some distance from people and I stood some distance from you and your parents uh, when you guys popped in. So I, you know, I was protecting you. I was thinking about it. I think I may have got it in Richmond Center Mall, but yeah, who knows? You know, I didn't, it uh, doesn't seem that I infected any staff. Nobody else have come down with it. And I was in the office on, on Thursday and Friday. We've had really good luck, actually, when you think about it in the office, that somehow everybody's gotten COVID on the weekend. <laughs> like nobody, nobody doesn't. We haven't had any like outbreaks. Yeah, I mean, we had like a couple staff getting it at the same time, but no, you know, ripping through the office and taking everyone out. Yeah, I, I, we've we've somehow managed. It's been a real struggle, but we somehow managed. However, we've got a little bit more space now. We can spread out, hopefully. It has been a real struggle. And I thought that that is actually a good segue into some of the struggles that we've been seeing with staffing levels. I mean, everybody has been experiencing this. The uh, I was supposed to be recording this podcast this week from Nashville, Tennessee, where I was supposed to go for the DUIDLA women's retreat. And uh, thanks to the struggles, my flight out of Vancouver got canceled and uh, they rebooked me on something that was unworkable and unacceptable to me. (laughs) A flight I would never ever book for myself, um, a route that was circuitous at best and um, would have gotten- 12 hours in the back row of- uh... Yeah, a, uh, 
No. The back, middle of the seat of a back row of a 737. God, no. With flying. Uh, Through Chicago. Chicago and then Atlanta and then Nashville, yeah. Tennessee. Yeah. Chicago, which is, of course, to be avoided at all costs because that's yeah. COVID the first time. And also, you know, the get, get, getting to Tennessee is a lot easier if you go through Dallas. But anyway. Yeah. And then there was an option of going through Salt Lake City, but I've never flown through Salt Lake City before. I don't know what the airport's like. It, it was too dicey for me. So I just ended up um, canceling my entire trip. Well, I heard an economist on the radio um, the uh, the other day, or maybe it was something I saw on, on the on the internets, who knows, uh, who was saying that we were going to have labor shortages like this going for the next 50 years because of the baby boomers um, retiring and that wave of that. And people have been predicting this for the longest time, and we haven't really seen it. Um, and because our, our birth rate has not kept up with it. Now, I mean, I'm looking for some population decrease for a few reasons. Number one, it would put some relief on housing prices. Number two, it would uh, uh, assist us so our environmental issues and our, our, our outstripping our supply of resources that we need as a species to survive and the other species too on this planet to also have a right to survive. Uh, but um, it will be very interesting if we are in a labor shortage situation for a long time to come. And it's something that is hitting police forces big time. Yep. And uh, I, I didn't want to talk about what you are trying to, to lead into. <coughs> no. Um, but I wanted to talk about something that I had this week. Um, it's something that I've, I've dealt with a lot since COVID started as a result of labor shortages that is affecting the police and the justice system that will then lead into our next um, topic that you found. Um, because when I was reading what you found, it made me think about this. So one thing that happens when police sees your blood or your urine and they want to test it for drug impaired driving is they send it off to the RCMP forensic lab in Surrey. And the lab, once they get it, they go, cool, great. Thanks for this bodily sample. We'll add it to the growing pile. Pre-COVID, the turnaround time for results in the lab was 119 days. Actually, this was pre-Bill C-46. So before they changed the law and made you know more drug-impaired driving stuff. But we haven't seen a ton of drug-impaired driving enforcement in BC. Like, there's some, but there's not a lot. Um the blood test cases usually are, are accidents where there's injuries um, or, uh, or deaths. And so, you know, we haven't seen a significant increase in that. Nevertheless, we have seen a massive increase, more than doubling in the last four years, the length of time it takes to get a blood or urine sample analyzed. It's now been the last several applications I've had in court related to these that the lab has gotten back to the police and said minimum 250 days before we analyze your sample 250 days that is that is insane that is eight over eight months from when the police take your blood out of your body and send it to the lab and there's usually about a month of delay doing that anyway eight months to get 
the sample back with an analysis. That is ridiculous. And what happens, a lot of people don't realize this, but when the police take your, your shit, they can only keep it for three months. And whether that's your literal shit or your, your blood or your urine or your stuff or anything, anything they seize, if they execute a warrant or whatever, they can only keep it for three months unless charges are laid. So after the expiration of the three months, they have to seek an application an order from the court under section 490 of the criminal code for an extension of the time. And they can seek the extension for a period of up to a year. And after a year, then they have to go to the Supreme court and ask for a further extension from a Supreme court judge. So basically in every case where they take your blood or your urine, 90 days go by 90 ish days go by. You get a call from the police. Hey, we have an application we need your consent. A lot of people are just signing off saying it's just fine. But judges are starting to take notice that these applications are coming before the court and the police are saying, yeah, the lab tells us that they're understaffed and they're backlogged because of COVID. They also, in the middle of COVID, you and I both know, moved from Laurel Street in Vancouver to Surrey. So they also packed everything up and then moved and then COVID hit. So they were in a state of chaos and there was several months, I think almost a year where they didn't even analyze anything. Well, they had their big, beautiful lab though. Yeah. Big, beautiful lab lab. with no one in it to analyze samples. And judges are, are like increasingly when I started, you know, these applications started up maybe a year ago Judges were like, yeah, well, that's how long it takes. That's how long it takes. And as more of them have gotten before the courts, the commentary I'm getting from judges is like, I'm seeing this a lot and it's not acceptable. And RCMP staffing issues should not affect somebody's rights, whether they're under 490 of the code or whether they're under the charter and something's got to give. And I think that we're going to reach like a fever pitch of these applications coming before the court where eventually judges are going to go enough is enough. Everyone else is making it work. The lab can't just keep mounting delays and going, oh, we can't do anything. We don't have the staff. I'm just surprised that they've been willing to accept, you know, the, the evidence that they've had from the police without having somebody from the lab come at some point or some really good detailed affidavit from the lab. Like they're getting no information from the lab. And when I've looked at these applications, um, no substantive information from the lab. It just looks like, you know, we're, we're just delayed and that's just because that's it. And that's all we're just delayed, but no reason. Um, and, uh, no explanation. And, uh, and that to me is just not sufficient. And I'm, I'm surprised that this is the quality of the evidence that they're putting in because it's the police officer showing up in court, you know, basically hunching their shoulders and lifting their hands up and going, well, that's just the time it takes now. That's what they tell me. And I don't, I can't control it. But, but, but but there's, but there's like very legitimate concerns about it. I mean, aside from the fact that they present, they are possessing your bodily substance, um, you know, feels like you're a violation of your personal integrity the entire time and you're not charged the entire time. There's also like degrading of the sample and you don't know if it degrades in your favor or not. Like, and, and even if it does degrade in your favor, that might undermine some other aspect of your defense. 
well, you actually, need to have a defense. You know, talking about degradation, um, in cases where they've executed a warrant and seized hospital samples, those are previously uncapped tubes, which yeah. means oxygen's been introduced. They also don't have the same mm-hmm. forensic preservatives in the tube um, that the gray stoppered blood kit collection for forensic purposes have. So when you combine opened tubes with the wrong preservatives, and then you say, we need eight months to analyze this, even though it's sitting in a fridge, fermentation, not can, will happen. And there's lots of scientific studies that have been done on like when you take a sample, even using a gray stoppered forensic tube, how long after you test it, test blood for alcohol, and the sample is basically no longer viable for testing after like 60 to 90 days. The people at the lab know of these studies. They're aware of the flaws. Do you think they ever say, hey, you know, this compromises the integrity of the evidence, we're sorry, um, in their reports? Well, yeah, their certificate doesn't say there was coagulation in the tube, right? <laughs> like, or that there the wasn't. certificate doesn't say there was, there was a little bit of mold grown on top of it. Yeah. It never says that. They never say that there was a problem. And you hear about it in the States all the time, right? Because they get all this information about the testing. They which is a fascinating okay. thing, you know, in Canada, our, our trust in the police, you know, the, uh, we just get a certificate that says the reading. And that's the same with testing drugs in this country. And we just used to accept it and just say, oh, okay, well, that's the reading, that's it. And then you and I started going to these conferences in the U.S., and we started making requests for those, you know, that was the same with the maintenance of the of the instruments, right? And we started making requests for information about the maintenance of the instruments. We just started discovering that the instruments were being properly maintained, that they were malfunctioning with significant uh, problems uh, from time to time, particularly ASDs. And you and I made, you know, it was a result of us doing that, that the complete, uh, methods for maintaining and calibrating ASDs has been changed. And then they changed the law so we couldn't get the information mm-hmm. on the approved um, approved instruments, the breathalyzers back at the detachment. And then you, of course, um, you know, put them to the test in that one case you had where you forced them to disclose the steps they did in testing some drugs. And they were so arrogant about it. Like, we're not going to provide you with this disclosure about the about it. And of course you succeeded and changed the law and that's great. But, um, you know, when it comes to this blood testing, we don't know if the refrigerator is checked every day for the temperature. We don't get, we can't get disclosure of their, of their records for if they have them, um, for the maintenance of their, of their thermometer and thermostat, Mm -hmm. um, the refrigerator. We don't know if the thing's gone in and out. I mean, we just don't know. Yep. Exactly. We, we don't know if they took it out, put it on the counter because they were hoping to get it done that day. And then they had a spill and it sat out on the counter for four hours. And then they put it back to do it the next day. And then 120 <laughs> days went by, right? You can't we even cross-examine the person who analyzed the blood unless you prove to the court that it would be necessary. But you can't get the evidence to prove to the court that it would be necessary because they prohibit you from getting that evidence. Yep. It, uh, it is fascinating to me that we have this level of arrogance in Canada about the police and that they, the courts seem to be willing to go along with it. And it's just a long-established thing. And you would think that there'd been enough information by now about 
you know, police uh, official police lying that uh, that we that you know the courts would be suspicious of these things, but they're not. And you know, generally speaking, we have to trust the police. But you and I look at police reports every day, and as a consequence, as a consequence, we don't. It's not that we're unreasonable people. No, I'm a very reasonable person. But yeah, um, but this leads into a case that you found that is. I think an example of a judge going enough is enough. This is not an acceptable excuse. Yeah. It, I mean, it's, it's interesting the way that the judgment is written, um, but it's, uh, and it, it, he's, he or she is missing some case law in there um, on this and could have been a more in-depth analysis, but it, it does hit the point. So this was another, um, do you want me to describe it? You're so much better at describing these things, Kyla. Uh, Okay, so this is a case dealing with the question of whether breath samples were taken as soon as practicable, which is essentially um, reasonably promptly in the circumstances. It's not as soon as possible, um, but it's also not like whenever they get around to it. And what happened was um, this guy gets arrested. The name of the case, I was just pulling it up. Um, The name of the case is... Oh, you sent me a Canley link now. Wait, Uh, I was like, it's a funny name. Pickles, Brian. Um, The name of the case is Brian. And essentially what happens is Mr. Brian gets arrested. uh, The police read him a breath demand. And then they have to find somehow a way to get his breath samples taken. But it takes extra long because the Nova Scotia RCMP were supposed to have like a minimum of four officers on shift in that town. Um, but they didn't in Colchester County. Uh, they only had um, three officers on shift. And so they didn't have somebody readily available at the time that Mr. Bryan was arrested to conduct the breath tests. <clears throat> there was one officer who remained at the scene after Mr. Bryan was arrested um, and so with uh, Mr. Bryan in the back of the police car, he started interviewing yeah. witnesses he could have interviewed later. Yeah, that was that was one issue. contact info and, and left him. But the case law on as soon as practicable has sort of said, like, as long as the officers engaged in duties that are necessary in the course of the investigation, then the delay is not, you know, it doesn't offend against the requirement. And the Court, the judgment in Brian, it's 2022 NSPC 26 is great because all the important paragraphs, the judge has bolded. <laughs> He's like, I'm not, I'm done with this. We didn't have the money to pay for cops. So people's charter rights just have to wait. No, yeah. he's done. Um, I love that. Uh, reading it at first, I thought, oh, this is a little bit strange. It's almost like yeah. he's yelling. And then yeah. I realized, you know what? He's like, he doesn't want anybody to miss this. This is important. (laughs) So the guiding principles um, uh, in ASD cases are whether delays are necessary or for legitimate public safety concerns, but they're also equally applicable when looking at delays administering breath tests that should be done as soon as practicable, as with the principle of delays having to be reasonable and justified. It's not a matter of counting minutes, but what are the reasons for the delay? Is it necessary? Is it a legitimate safety concern? Is it justified? Is it reasonable? So he's taking, he's actually taking, and I don't know why you say the cases 
that he looked at lacked analysis. He looks at all of the leading cases. Um, Vanderbergen is well recognized as as the uh, determinative case on the definition of as soon as practicable. Um, so, yeah, there there ends up being about twenty nine minutes of delay uh, accounted for by the staffing of the officer. And he repeatedly says in his judgment, you know, this isn't really like the problem of the officers. They were doing the best they could in a crappy situation. And as I was reading it, I thought, oh no, oh no, those types of statements make me sad for 24-2 analyses. Yes. You know, you're like, well, they're trying, but they, you know, they don't have enough and it's not their fault. It's a systemic problem. Um, the court confirms that the as soon as practicable requirement is indeed a section nine issue, which I love because I litigated that in BC and there were no cases on it. Um, he doesn't, I guess he doesn't, (coughs) but, but it is clear now that it's a section nine issue. I, I always just, I couldn't imagine how it wasn't because it's a warrantless search permissible only, um, because of the criminal code provisions and yeah. you've got to comply with the criminal code provisions what's that that would be section eight no i know but i i still think it it falls under as i was about to get there but that's fine go ahead no it's because then you're detained for the purposes of conducting the search and yes, I know. the search is only authorized within the four corners of the statute which exactly. requires as soon as practicable blah, 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 blah. but anyway Thankfully, gets to the right answer. The judge does come to the right conclusion and finds that the breach is serious in the circumstances. Uh, He says that uh, there was a paragraph 49, uh, that there was uh, a concern uh, for the deprivation of liberty that detention to accommodate the test entails. It is exceptional to require citizens to forfeit their liberty to accommodate police investigations. While it is necessary to do so, the period of deprivation should not be unnecessarily long given its purpose. The additional 29 minutes of detention of Ms. Bryan was unnecessarily long given its purpose of administering what should have been a routine breath test. And um, he determines that uh, this was not necessary, justified, reasonable, or legitimate safety concerns, and that no other remedy other than staying the charge, essentially. I mean, it's a, it, he's throwing out the samples, but it results in the charge being stayed, is sufficient in these particular circumstances, considering how the administration of justice would be brought into disrepute by permitting RCMP administrative staffing decisions to unnecessarily prolong the detention of individuals. Exactly. I love it. You're going to detain somebody for an investigative purpose pursuant to the criminal code, and you can't facilitate it pursuant to the criminal code. Um, And they are just detained during that time. Um, and the reason you can't do it is because you've made decisions with respect to staffing, but, you know, I'd love it too. I think it's spot on and I agree with it and I'm thankful for it. And it's a, you know, it's going to, it will be applied. Um, 
but it's going to be a problem across this country as we have labor shortages and COVID illnesses. And there's going to be more cases like this. Uh, you know, if they can't get enough staff together to be able to get an airplane off the ground, they've got to be dealing with this in various detachments across the country. Mm-hmm. Well, I know uh, things like this, up. especially in smaller communities. You know, the, I talk to officers in Clearwater, you know, and they tell me you were supposed to have this many people. And we've got this many people right now. One guy's on holiday. One guy's sick with COVID. Another person has been incapable of coming in because of this for a while. And we're down to like two officers on any shift. And there's eight hour periods where there's nobody on. Yep. Well, I I know that it's a big deal in Yukon where um, and Northern detachments generally, but in Yukon, um, you know, I've had lots of times where, where cross-examining officers asking them, you know, why didn't you do this sooner? Why didn't this happen sooner? And, and their, their answers are always, well, we don't have the manpower. <laughs> well, in this case, though, they got down to a different issue, right? They figured out um, uh, that, they, that they, uh, they figured out that that was an actual administrative decision that they were short-staffed. It wasn't like a, just a today we're short staff type thing. One person's sick, which they might've forgiven, you know, looking at the facts. Yeah. Uh, Might've been willing to overlook it. Well, I'm, uh, I'm going to use this case a lot going forward. I'm sure you will. (laughs) I really, it's one of my, one of my pleasures is the podcast is reading cases. I like going through just looking over the last month or so of what's come out in impaired driving cases. It's uh, uh, I don't conduct trials anymore for these things almost never um, since COVID, of course. Like I think there's been one um, that I've had to actually do a trial on this. I don't even know. Did we do? Yeah, we did. We did one COVID trial, heavy duty one. Um, <clears throat> but uh, it's usually when I'm in preparation Sorry, just, for trial. Just to be clear, we did one COVID trial together. I have done so many trials. You've done you've done dozens and dozens and dozens. <laughs> so many I trials, haven't. I've lost count. I haven't. Um, the uh, I only had two trials since COVID. Everything else has been negotiated out in some form or another. Um, I mean, traffic ticket trials. Yeah, but you've done a bunch of impaired driving trials. That's true. But it's always when I've got a trial that I'm always learning the new case law. The week before, I'm looking something up. Oh, okay, this bit's of development. Oh, okay. Anyway, that's been my uh, that's been my 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 learning my learning uh, method over the course of my career. Yes. Anyway, that's how, that's how our that's how our uh, our judgment database that we've got in our office always expands. Paul has a trial. Oh, there's four more cases added. Well, it's it's time for our the ridiculous driver of the week. driver of the week and excited oh i am excited but i don't i want to know which one it is i sent you a couple oh um it's the one the fox news one that you sent me oh my gosh yeah so this you kind of have to see to believe one of those uh situations i don't know how to describe it it's it's a video out of georgia google Georgia reckless driver strikes officer comma bystanders during traffic stop, police say. 
Well, I would say that police don't just say police have it all on dash cam. So I, it's not clear in the video what leads up to this, but effectively well, this guy in a Apparently what leads up to it is a, a high speed, uh, this vehicle speeding through town like at 100 miles an hour and, yeah. uh, and coming up on some police cars. Champagne colored infinity. Um, and there's all these people standing around outside police cars. Not all of them are police officers. It's not clear where they came from or why they're there. Um, but this champagne colored infinity, just big like SUV, big SUV, the largest one, I think. Yeah. Just, just drives right up against the side of one of the police SUVs, almost pinning a person in between the two cars, but he manages to run out of the way in time then uh, reverses, does it again, almost pins the guy a second time and then takes off. And you can see the cops like in, in the video, my, my favorite part is the reaction of the police because they're just like, oh, come on. <laughs> like, it takes them a minute to like actually put the hustle into getting in their police cars. And then they get and they pursue the car they eventually pull it over again. Three cars box it in. But this guy is not deterred. He reverses into the car that's filming him, then moves forward with enough speed and force to push the police car forward, back again, forward again. There's smoke coming out of this guy's engine. He doesn't care. He's created enough of a gap that he can get his SUV out and continues driving. The police are already out of their cars. So like, again, the same, like, oh, come on reaction <laughs> before ultimately they do, uh, they do um, box him in. Well, and uh, it's interesting that you, uh, that you picked a gender there for the driver, because that was my assumption too. And then I kept thinking, well, they would just shoot this guy. I mean, if it was in Canada, you just shoot the guy. That's a huge danger to the public. Um, he's using the vehicle as a weapon. He's threatening police. He's, I mean, it's, it's as bad as you could get, but then you find out that it's a, uh, middle-aged, uh, woman, um, with a child in the back of the car. And that's probably the reason that they were, the police seemed sort of stunned throwing their hands up in the air. Like, what are we going to do? We're not shooting somebody with a child in the car. We're not shooting at a woman in a car. Um, it was a woman. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, uh, you, you know, your first thought was something else, an angry white guy. Um, you I mean, know, that's some, some, like, somebody who's, somebody who's, a who's a, a gang member trying to hide his drugs and guns. Um, after this long chase, no, it's a, uh, it's a woman. Um, it's a, it's an angry Karen basically, um, by the looks of it, probably in her, in her early forties. Wow. Well, good for Child her. In the dark. Breaking down gender stereotypes. <laughs> well, <clears throat> you certainly assumed the worst uh, of the uh, male species there, the male ha half of our species, 50% of the population. You just described that it was going to be a guy. Um, the uh, But I understand that. I thought that too. I just assumed with that vehicle that it was going to be some angry, angry, white guy going through some life issue and said it was a angry uh white uh female with a child in the back yeah one wonders what people are thinking 
but she, yeah, I mean, a huge, huge risky thing. It's just amazing that there was nobody seriously injured. That person who, when you're watching it, it looks like they're a bystander um, who uh, might've been a off-duty police officer or even an undercover or something, but they, they go to the front of the car twice, almost get crushed by this woman. Um, mm-hmm. the, uh, and there's all these vehicles parked on the side of the road, uh, you know, innocent people watching, being, making sure that they're, they're clear for the police. Um, and this vehicle drives down the road and then continues and they, you know, they have to box it in again and it continues. And these officers are just exasperated. They're running up to the car at some point and they're trying to, you know, persuade her. And they're not smashing the window open or anything. And then, you know, you can see eventually they're banging on the window. Um, But um, yeah, it's a, it's a funny one. Yep. Well, that's our podcast. Thanks Carla. If you have a driving law related issue, you can give us a call at 604-685-8889 or find us online at vancouvercriminallaw.com and tune in next week for another very exciting episode of Driving Law and hopefully a very big announcement. To our next stolen kid